Welcome back to the Progress City Radio Hour, coming to you live from downtown Progress City, USA. I am Michael Crawford, and with me, as always, is Jeff Crawford. How are you today, Jeff? I'm doing well. When when was our last episode? Just a few oh, weeks ago? I, yes. I mean, we've taken a few weeks off, but we're glad to be back here. We are. Yes, we are glad to be back and very excited to be back and hoping that it won't be another decade before the next episode. And what better way to fuel our ardor than patriotism, than the spirit of America? And what better way to kick off with some fireworks for our newly revived podcast than to talk about the 4th of July a very important Disney holiday. You know, Michael, if you looked in the eyes of Walt Disney, you'd see American flags waving. Did you know that? I, I've, I've heard rumors to that effect. A twinkle in the eye, a flag waving. That was Walt's way. There's a lot of stuff in his eyes. Yeah. There was, yeah, there was a lot in Walt's eyes. But, you know, you, if you look over to the left, you would see that, that flag waving, old glory waving. And Walt was a patriotic guy. Americana was a big part of Disneyland and a big part of Disney World and a big part of Disney in general. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Yes, we're going to go through a few eras of the Disney company. Uh, Actually, just two on this episode. We're going to visit the 1950s with Johnny Tremaine and a unbuilt Disneyland attraction land. And then we're going to check in, see what's on the progress city TV tonight. Yes. We're going to see how the spirit of America was celebrated in 1988 with the Walt Disney world. Fourth of July spectacular. And I think you'll agree that it is indeed spectacular. Oh, it's definitely spectacular. So as we're looking to revive our sleepy little podcast, uh, one of the things uh, that you know occurred to us, a, a way to approach it, was to take things in a more thematic fashion. A, a magazine approach, such as the, should you say, PM Magazine or Epcot Magazine approach. I would take either, yes, gladly. Either way, I, I'm... I aspire to be the Bob Lacey of uh, Disney podcasts, but uh, we're, yeah, we're going to take a thematic approach each month and take a little bit from here and a little bit from there and each with a common theme and just kind of talk about what we feel like things that uh, tickle our fancy. We are so excited to be back. And we're going to start this off with a special song in the Disney canon. Yeah, this is a great one. One that you probably know, even if you don't know that you know it. You know it from it coming out of trees and bushes as you explore the wonders of Walt Disney World. So let's take a look and see what's lighting up the Liberty Tree. Everyone to hear. Yankee Doodle, sing it up for Yankee Doodle Bandy. Find the music and the words and with the song be handy. 
we're going to start off this podcast with a song feature, and that song is Liberty Tree from the 1957 movie Johnny Tremaine. Uh, Michael, this movie was pretty important to Walt, was it not? Yes, it was. It really was. He was a a patriotic fellow, as we all know, but uh, this was something that, uh, if I'm not mistaken, was originally meant to be a TV special, and then it got kind of bumped up to be a feature film. That's correct. And then, uh, yeah, it was supposed to be a two-part TV special. This is a time where they're getting into live action, obviously, but also uh, period dramas, and they're off the success of Davy Crockett. This is a Newbery Award-winning novel by Esther Forbes from 1944 that Disney got the rights to. And uh, he put Tom Blackburn on the script. And Tom Blackburn had worked on Davy Crockett. He was a former Pulp Fiction writer who wrote mostly Hmm. Western stuff. And uh, he ended up, I guess, moving into Western screenplays. He also did uh, Westward Ho! The Wagons and an episode of Daniel Boone. So that's kind of his milieu. But he is in this as a screenwriter. And he is the writer of the lyrics of this song. Oh, interesting. For the music, you have the legendary George Bruns, who may need no introduction to some, but uh, I found it interesting. This was close to the beginning of his career. These two had written The Ballad of Davy Crockett, which was a massive hit for Disney. I think it was, it sold 8 million copies, which is just kind of staggering to me. Yeah. Yeah. Bruns was hired at Disney through Ward Kimball. Ward Kimball. Uh, had known Bruns as a tubist and had kind of had him in the Firehouse Five, his mm-hmm. band of animators mostly. And George had had just finished uh, in 1953 a short for UPA called Little Boy with a Big Horn. And Michael and I have watched this short and we recommend <laughs> everybody watch it. I had never seen this until you sent it to me and it's... It's, I mean, very much in the UPA style. It's pretty amazing. It's very random. Yes. And again, the the obsession of these guys of this era with like the gaslight era, right? Like, I don't know, slick haired, mustache sort of uh, turn of the century guy. It is, yeah, uh, and. You know, Little Boy with Big Horn has a lot of kind of Dixielandish uh, of this era music. And one of the first projects Bruns got tasked with doing at Disney was working on Sleeping Beauty, which was a had to be quite the project. I mean, obviously, the production of that movie was intense. And um, he's working with uh, Tchaikovsky's Sleeping Beauty Ballet and working it into a score for a movie. I mean, that is a pretty impressive leap. Yeah, it is to go from, you know, you know, short films at a little indie studio to the the biggest of the big time of right. what you could be doing at this huge long in development picture over at Disney had to be a, a big jump for him. So in addition to his work on Sleeping Beauty, he did, as I said, Davy Crockett. He did the ballad of Davy Crockett, he did the music for Davy Crockett. He brought in a friend, Buddy Baker, to help him with the underscoring of Davy Crockett, which is a major big ups to George Bruns. Buddy Baker would go on to have a illustrious Disney career. Uh, working well, well into the eighties and maybe even nineties, possibly. That's right. 
right. It's weird to think of Buddy Baker as being like the apprentice to anyone, but this is kind of like in like classical music where you know the guy who studied under Beethoven taught <laughs> Mozart or something like that. Right. It's just this chain of uh, chain of famous artists, one after the other. Yeah, in this uh, interview I saw with Buddy Baker, he said, I, I did no melody, no composition work on Davy Crockett. I was just working with George Bruns' stuff and, and orchestrating it. So, you know, to go from that to what he went on to do is pretty amazing. And you know, The entire soundscape of Epcot Center, for one. Right, right. Uh, and Bruns would do some work for Mickey Mouse Club, and he would go on to do all kinds of stuff, you know, 101 Dalmatians, Sword in the Stone, all kinds Ugly of Yes. Robin Hood. <laughs> he really was the goat. He was he was the best. Yes. Yes. It's very iconic sound and like once you know the bronze style, you'll hear it everywhere in this sort of sixties era Disney stuff. Right. Yeah. It's a signature sound. But this song, Liberty Tree, happens at uh, in Johnny Tremaine as they are Marching from the Boston Tea Party to the Liberty Tree. And there was a real Liberty Tree in Boston. It was a then 100-year-old elm tree, thereabouts, uh, where people would protest to gather the Stamp Act at first with effigies. It later became a rallying point for the upcoming revolution. And as in Johnny Tremaine, they hung lanterns in celebration, uh, which we see also in Walt Disney World. Though, in 1775, they hung 45 instead of the 13, and that's more congruent with the Johnny Tremaine version. Unfortunately, this tree was cut down in the Siege of Boston by a British soldier in 1775. And don't be cutting down trees. Mm -mm. An interesting side note to this history is that a reproduction of the, the Liberty Tree was featured in the New England Pavilion of the 1964 World's Fair. And it was made out of aluminum and plastic, and it was <laughs> later moved into a mall in Massachusetts. Though it seems like the leaves didn't make it with it. It was just kind of a barren tree-looking <laughs> thing that was a centerpiece of a mall. <laughs> Brutalist tree yes. at the center of the mall. It's like the white tree in Lord of the Rings, the dead right. tree at, in the mall. Right. So, obviously, the Liberty Tree would, would be a, a big thing at Walt Disney World. And and this song, kind of uh, the reason we picked it, is it comes up again and again in, in patriotic music in Disney. It's kind of a real... It, it sounds like a original kind of contemporary uh, revolutionary song. They do a really good job uh, matching it to the period. Yeah, you could hear it as like a sort of fife and drum kind of thing or as like a shanty kind of thing. It, it really fits that vibe really well. So without further ado, here is the Liberty Tree from 1957's Johnny Tremaine. Thank you. 
Plant the seed in our homeland, boys. Let it grow where all can see. Feed it with our devotion, boys. Call it the Liberty Tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. Save it from the storm, boys. Water down its roots with tea. And the sun will always shine on the old liberty tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. March along with the Pfeiffer boys, always pay the tyrant's fee. Never give up the struggle, boys, fight for the Liberty Tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. of man, boys, stand against all tyranny. Hang the lamps of freedom, boys, high on the liberty tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. Work together forever, boys, don't forget the enemy. Loyally watch forever, boys, over the liberty tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. It will grow as we go, boys, don't forget the enemy. We must cling to our faith, boys, faith in the liberty tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. We have won us a battle, boys, we have won a victory. We have stood as one, boys, for the old liberty tree. It's a tall old tree and a strong old tree. And we are the sons, yes, we are the sons, the sons of liberty. Plant the seed in our homeland, boys, let it grow where all can see. Feed it with our devotion, boys, call it the liberty tree. It's a tall old tree. This is a story told in Johnny Tremaine by Esther Fords. It's a book about a boy who lived in the time of Paul Revere, and it tells a vital chapter of the Liberty story. In fact, this book intrigued us so much that we not only made a Technicolor motion picture of it, we're also creating an entire new section in Disneyland the Park based upon it. As you know, Disneyland Park is a sort of a monument to the American way of life. But after reading Johnny Tremaine, we realized we had overlooked one major item in the blueprint, a memorial to the freedoms that made it all possible. Well, we're busy putting it in. Right here, off the town square. We're calling it Liberty Street. Everything's in the planning stage, of course, but our research has taken us back to a period we'd like to recreate as a reminder that the Liberty story is the story without end. In effect, Liberty Street will be Johnny Tremaine's Boston of about 1775.
Thanks, Walt. When Disneyland opened in 1955, a facade along Main Street's town square advertised that coming soon would be an international street. This was meant to be a winding thoroughfare of shops themed to different nations. But while that never did happen at Disneyland, it did provide the template many, many years later for the World Showcase at Walt Disney World. A little over a year after Disneyland opened, in November of 1956, Disney announced that an entirely new land would be coming to Disneyland, called Liberty Street. This new land would take the space originally intended for International Street, tucked away behind the east side of Main Street, and it would feature a colonial theme. It was slated for opening in October of 1957 and was said to have a budget of about $4.4 million. As we know, obviously something that never happened at Disneyland, although the idea lived on for Walt Disney World's Liberty Square. But we thought we'd take a look at this uh, Disneyland expansion that never happened and really came from the spirit of Johnny Tremaine. Uh, this was right after Disney had made Johnny Tremaine, and I, he must have just been in that headspace of patriotism and colonial America. And so this was going to be a street and a little cul-de-sac that was based on 1770s and 1780s America. I think it's interesting that Walt says that there's something that we forgot in the design of Disneyland. It feels like that, you know, it feels like he's like, oh, wait, we need to put this in. This has got to be in like Frontierland, Main Street USA aren't telling the full story that he wants to tell. Exactly. Yeah, it, it is true because so much of, you know, you look at the dedication plaque and he's talking about, the, you know, it's dedicated to all these things that came together to create America. And he did leave out the sort of fundamental uh, aspect of it, the the revolutionary spirit, the colonial era, uh, the founding fathers and all of that. It is kind of surprising that he left it out, but he was this was, as I said, you know, this was announced in 1956. So it was pretty soon after the park was open and he was going to rectify this. Uh, this was going to be an area where all the attractions would be free. They would have free admission. You wouldn't have to buy a ticket. Uh, they thought it would encourage the widest possible exposure, which is an idea that he would later use a few years later. Well, quite a few years later uh, when they brought Mr. Lincoln to the park, Mr. Lincoln was always a freebie because they uh, thought as many people should see it as possible. So that was going to be the thought here. Uh, Liberty Street would tell the story of our American heritage and its relationship to freedom of enterprise, which made me laugh. You can always tell freedom of enterprise gets dropped in there when they really need sponsor participation. Right. And they were gunning for sponsor participation. Very much, especially since this was going to be a, you know, a free attraction. Uh, they needed those sponsors to help underwrite it. Ed Edinger, who was uh, Disneyland's director of development, said that uh, the sponsors would be limited to 13 businesses or industrial concerns. Uh, they were uh, looking at negotiations with metal companies, electronics companies, uh, and companies in insurance, which I thought was interesting. Naturally. Uh, yeah, of course. Glass and investment companies. So they were in talks with all these companies. They would pick 13, one for each colony, I suppose. Uh, it would have been fun if they had had one business from each colony. They should have done that. But 
just sounds like so much for such a little area. I just don't know how it would have worked. It's just impressive. Uh, totally. I'll plot it out. But, you know, in this era of these new immersive lands, I thought it was interesting that the document that we were reading says it will, quote, give each guest a living experience rather than just a show. So it was designed to be super immersive, maybe a, a new leap in immersion for the guest than what was already in Disneyland. And that seemed to be, and we'll see how that works, but uh, interesting that they're definitely trying to further the medium of what they're doing already. And one year in. Right. And you know what I, th this really made me th think of, and this is something we'll talk about as we talk about the things that are going to be here, but reading about this land, you know, really what it makes me think of very strongly is Knott's Berry Farm. Yes, yes. I thought about Knott's Berry Farm. Obviously, you think of Liberty Square, and I thought about New Orleans Square. There's definitely some of that as well. True, very true. But I feel like the original Disneyland was much closer to Knott's. Knott's, which has this real, especially at the time, kind of like simulation of the real world, like, you know, the real blacksmith and the real... It's all this stuff that he pulled from this ghost town. So you've got the real old school and the real old this and the real old that. Right. And people out doing like traditional crafts and things uh, just as they did. And that is a lot of the spirit of what they were doing here. They would have people doing these arts and crafts from from the past in the, in the traditional way. And uh, so reading about it, it just really made me think of Knott's and all the weird little like exhibits Knott's has and the weird little just pieces of history they have sitting around. Uh, that was very much in the spirit of this. Yeah, um, the not afraid to kind of be a museum and weird trinket shop and theme park kind of <laughs> amalgam. Yeah, totally, totally. With people just kind of doing stuff off in the corner and it's not a big deal. It's not a huge attraction. It's not like based on a movie or anything like that. It's just this kind of weird thing going on, kind of its its own thing. So immersion is an interesting word for it because this would definitely have, have been that. Uh, we should talk about where it was going to be. I mentioned that it was off of Town Square, off of Main Street. This would have been north of the Opera House just in that corner where, you know, characters usually come out to do meet and greets, uh, in that corner, right beside where the Maxwell House coffee shop was, this little street would extend. This would be Liberty Street. At the end of Liberty Street, it would take a right turn into a cul-de-sac called Liberty Square. And this is where the main attractions for the area would be. But all along the street, all along Liberty Street would be shops and exhibits set into buildings from the revolutionary period and made to look like composite of different American cities from the era. It would have cobblestone streets and period architecture. And I think, you know, looking at the layout, you know, they, they had that coffee house there on the corner, but it almost looks as the coffee house has a, a side facing Liberty street and that it would have been like a colonial coffee house. So that would have yes. been kind of neat. A little yeah. colonial tea house or whatever. And down the street, we have all these shops. Uh, shops that they listed included blacksmith, apothecary, a glassmaker, a weaver, a print shop, which would be neat. Uh, insurance, of course. <laughs> I'm I'm there. 
I would get my insurance at Disneyland. <laughs> I bet they would offer it. Well, didn't one of his brothers maybe sell insurance? Maybe he should have set up a shop there. You yeah, know, that's just true. Hey. Uh, silversmith and cabinet maker. And so the idea was each of these was an actual working shop where artists and craftsmen would use the actual tools of the revolutionary period and create articles that were typical of the time. So, you know, you'd go in the silversmith shop and you'd have guys doing silversmith work. Right. And, and then you kind of meander through and it kind of follows a timeline into more modern times. So that would be an interesting thing to see how they would pull that off in such a small space. Right. Well, the gimmick for this was, and this was where they would bring in the sponsors, is the front of the shop would be the traditional, like, say, silversmith, or say, uh, the blacksmith. Uh, Blacksmith shop, traditional tools, traditional methods. You go behind a partition, and in the back of each shop would have an exhibit area. And this is a real sort of Epcot-y thing. Exactly. Each exhibit area would show modern industry. So in the blacksmith shop, you'd see them doing the traditional stuff then you'd go in the back and there would be an exhibit about how colonial blacksmiths evolved into the modern iron and steel industry so each of these would be sponsored by a company or like an industry group or a you know an interest group in that field and you'd have an exhibit in the back of what with like their products showing what they sell today and how their modern industry descended from the colonial era, which is a pretty crazy idea. It is. And there's a kind of detailed plot of how a glass blowing shop would work. And you would kind of go in and go around a glass blower and kind of make two or three S's and end up in, you know, back on the street. But uh, it's really interesting how they, how they're working with the space they have and, and, and cramming a lot in. Yeah, well, that goes to, you know, what you were saying about New Orleans Square. This is a very early version of maximizing your space and having all sorts of switchbacks and, you know, alleyways and things like that where they can cram in a lot of things. One of the ways they also maximize the space was by the inclusion of dioramas, which is another thing that makes me sort of think of knots. Which, that was one of my favorite details. I mean, that's the one of the things that I hate that we missed out on seeing. Yeah, oh, this place would be fantastic. Oh, it also makes me think of the little galleries they have in Paris off of Main Street. Right, right. Where they have little dioramas in there. I think those are still there. But the idea was that, you know, in each shop, you have what would, if there was... You know, it would be a blind window because it's up against another building, you know. But instead of that, you have a little diorama outside the window. Uh, Some of the ones that they uh, show in the artwork, there's one in the glass shop looking out upon an evening at Mount Vernon. Yes, please. Yeah, totally. And then in the silversmith shop, they have a window looking out at the Old North Church over the harbor with some ships. Yeah. And... uh, there were about seven of these on the plan, uh, on one of the plans they released to show, you know, how this would work. And, you know, each shop would have one or two of these windows that would look out upon a colonial diorama. And this would have been so cool. How great would this be? It would be amazing. It just made me think of the, uh, the windows in the Tiki room, you know, that they they expand the space so much. And it made me think, man, I wish they would do these in the world showcase shops, like in the back of Germany, you know, you could like look out, you know, they have a window 
it just you know expands the theming but so cool to think about this tiny space and they're they're looking at how to make it bigger i mean obviously this kind of goes in with walt's uh disneylandia stuff that before disneyland it seems like but it also is kind of a bridge to like i said the tiki room and and their you know experiments with space yeah the disneylandia that's a good call and uh, that you know all his entry into the world of theme parks was through miniatures wanting to display miniatures and this is just really a you know a big big way to do that in a in a in a much bigger way uh so you know i think one of the reasons i love talking about liberty street i think this would be one of my favorite places in the park yeah yeah i love liberty square and it seems like a kind of tighter version of liberty square with a little bit more you know yeah a little more uh hidden away in the nooks and crannies kind of thing and right. uh sort of what liberty a lot of things that liberty square used to have i feel like with uh like silversmith and that that, right, that kind right. of thing those those arts and crafts so it would have been neat uh, at the end of the street is one of my favorite features which is a waterfront harbor scene yeah and this is probably the thing i would love the most and because i'm weirdo but yeah yeah oh absolutely i mean this is a kind of like a forced perspective backdrop so as you were coming down the street you would see this off in the distance uh they had would have two life-size sailing vessels not completely built but just so you would see them kind of poking out uh representing trading ships from the era and then ships kind of in the distance and the opposite shore of the harbor would be in reduced scale. So this would be a, a forced perspective kind of optical illusion to make it look bigger than it is. And, uh, you know, you have the, would have the masts towering over the street, you know. It, this was a gag that they much, much later used in New Orleans Square when they added in some ship sails poking over uh, the square, which is a great effect. And I think that's why New Orleans Square came to mind is those ship sails kind of over the horizon of a uh, a winding tight alleyway kind of thing. But yeah, you go in and, and you see this as a background, then you take a kind of 90 degree angle and look at Liberty Square at the cul-de-sac where the attractions are. But what a what a cool thing to imagine going on Main Street, turning, you know, slightly at the Opera House and seeing these ships uh, in the distance. I mean, that would have been really, really cool. It would be a great effect. And, you know, the background music would be great. You know, like oh, the sound effects. I'm sure they have like the birds and the clanging bells. You got to have that. Uh, yeah, it would be a great effect. It it's be- interesting. I mean, this is like even more them leaning into their kind of movie making sensibility to design a theme park here it feels like the original disneyland you know they use forced perspective on main street but frontierland is pretty huge and you know just big but this is kind of making super forced perspective uh movie trickery kind of happen yeah well that's what happens when you have you know these movie art directors you know, that came from the motion picture industry and are masters of faking space in places right. where there is no space. And, you know, Herb Ryman did a lot of the illustrations for this area. And, you know, he came from that tradition. Uh, a lot of the WED from this time, I, all of WED from this time pretty much came from that tradition. So 
they were real, real masters of using movie tricks in a three-dimensional space. And, uh, you know, this is tucked into just this tiny little area behind Main Street where, uh, you know, it's not a lot of space, but it would have been, it would have felt like a lot of space. Right. So guests, when they turn at the end of the street, uh, they enter Liberty Square proper, which has a Liberty tree, which would survive in uh, the Liberty Square many, many years later at Walt Disney World, and a replica of Liberty Hall. And uh, when guests enter Liberty Hall, there were two attractions there, as opposed to the one we have at Walt Disney World. Uh, to their left would be the Hall of the Declaration of Independence. And to their right would be the Hall of the Presidents. That just, uh, there is some serious business going on in here. Very serious. Very Multiple ambitious. Multiple halls. Yeah. Multiple halls. Each very big. Uh, right. Seat about 500 people apiece. So this, they were not messing around. Uh, also in the foyer of Liberty Hall would be small dioramas depicting scenes of the Revolutionary War period and a display crediting the sponsors of all the attractions. So those well, 13 sure sponsors so. would get their shout out. Yeah. 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 I mean, this kind of reminds me of a, a Disney World layout here where you've got the, you know, at Disney World, it would be just two halls of the same thing. But, you know, they're moving a lot of people. They're planning on moving a lot of people. And that seems like a, a leap for the Disneyland thinking as well. Right, right. Well, and this is like really at a time period where they were figuring a lot of things out. You realize that, you know, they're announcing this Hall of the Declaration and the Hall of the Presidents in a period where audio animatronics didn't really exist. Right. They really wanted them to. Right. In the document... It doesn't mention the term. It doesn't use the term audio animatronics. It uh, talks about sort of lighting and sound, like surround sound and lighting and all these techniques and maybe like movable figures. It kind of hints at what they were thinking about doing, but never does it say, you know, you know, walking, talking, Abraham Lincoln, an audio animatronic right. figure. I'm, it's just amazing to think at this early level in 1956 you know, well before even the Tiki birds, uh, that this is where their head was and where their ambition was. And it goes a long way to explain why it didn't happen at the time, because technology took a long time to catch up with this idea. There's a lot of technology that, that you can tell they want in it. And they, they're talking a lot about stereo sound, you know, for one, but, but like you said, they, they really want it to be lifelike and compelling and, and, the technology wasn't there yet. And I imagine that was part of the problem of it getting made. In addition to the fact that they're building the Matterhorn the submarines and the monorail around the same time in the long run. Yes, truly. Um, this, this to me sounds like an example of Walt doing what he did best, which was to say he wants to do something that nobody really knows how to do. He's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. Uh, we don't really know how we're going to do it yet, but if you corporations give us the money, we'll do the R&D and figure right, it out. Right. I mean, they had done some, you know, with figures with like Project Little Man and the things that would become audio animatronics, but it was still a very rough thing. When we see later what it takes to bring a lifelike human audio animatronic as sponsors from 
the World's Fair in 1964. Right, exactly. And it was it just barely, barely happened, and that was almost 10 years later. Right. So let's take a look at these attractions. The Hall of Declaration of the Independence would be the story of the birth of the United States. In a colonial auditorium, about 500 people would sit on bench-like pews lit by 13 stars in the ceiling. And the idea here was that it would present three animated tableaus framed to appear as if they're paintings that have come to life. So you would sit in the theater. There would be this big curtained stage with three large, enormous frames. And as the show progressed, the curtains would part on one of the frames and like a little animatronic scene would play out inside the frame. Uh, they would use forced perspective on the sets to make the rooms appear to have greater depth, to be bigger than they actually were. And each of the little scenes would be based on a famous painting and would represent a different phase in the progress of the Declaration of Independence. It would be the framing, the signing, and the proclaiming of the Declaration of Independence. A narration would play that would tell the story and the significance of the different scenes. And then there would be be quotes from the declaration itself. So the first of these scenes is familiar to Disney fans, would show Thomas Jefferson discussing his draft of the Declaration of Independence with Ben Franklin and John Adams. And uh, it was taken from a painting by J.L.G. Ferris called The Drafting of the Declaration of Independence. But this scene is very similar to the scene in The American Adventure. Oh, yes. I mean... This I, this is such a creative idea to me, just to think about telling a narrative through known paintings that you are reappropriating. It's really interesting. But also, as we've seen all these ideas kind of resurface later on, this whole presentation reminds me of the American Adventure. Because the American Adventure is very you know, visual and very, there's like design scenes that look like portraits and some of them are kind of taken from portraits. Yes. Uh, so true. Totally. Reminds me of like a very early draft of the American adventure. That is a great point because I, as you say, like a lot of those scenes in uh, American adventure are taken from not only paintings, but also from like photographs, uh, right, like the right. John Muir, and the, the one in the Depression gas station are yeah. like straight lifts from old photographs. And uh, this is kind of that same idea. It's like, it's the idea of like the sort of living tableau or the, um, right. the living paintings or, you know, that, that kind of deal. Uh, so we would see them framing the Constitution. The second scene is the signing of the Declaration of Independence. Uh, taken from John Trumbull's painting in 1819. This is a painting that everybody knows. This would be the big one in the center, like the taking up the most of the stage where you'd have all the guys there to sign the Declaration of Independence. And then the third scene uh, would be the ringing of the Liberty Bell, uh, painted by Henry Mosler, uh, which shows a page notifying the bell ringer that the Declaration has been signed, and he rings the Liberty Bell. And so that announces that freedom is here, so you get the three stages and the whole story told. And like you said, they're messing with forced perspective. They're doing a lot of lighting work. You know, there's one note where the sun will be kind of twinkling in on the scene and, and some movement with the characters. We don't know how much was planned, but pretty creative way to communicate this and a vernacular that a lot of people would know, you know, it's just, uh, it would, kind of be pretty amazing at the time to see this these scenes come to life 
and you know what what is next door would be even more amazing right well especially since people would not have seen anything like this i mean possibly with living actors certainly not with animatronic actors and like you said they're these very cool cutaways i think probably by sam mckim that are little cutaways of how they would achieve the effect in 3d and you know tracing the the viewer's sight line and you know all the little lighting effects that they would have so it would probably be pretty impressive it would be impressive today it would have been extremely impressive in 1957 right right and so across the way as he mentioned is the hall of the presidents of the united states which is sounds pretty remarkably similar to what we know today as the hall of presidents at walt disney world right it would open very dramatically on washington jefferson adams and madison in silhouette then the lights would come up on Washington and there would be a narrator, as in the, the current show. They would tell about the events of the revolutionary era and uh, excerpts of addresses of Washington and others would be used. It's interesting to me that the focus was not yet on Lincoln uh, in the way they describe it. Right, but very constitutional. And so it's interesting, you know, they have the declaration, they have the constitution and then the Hall of Presidents kind of roles from from there so you could see it all in sequence yeah it is interesting if you go sort of clockwise around the liberty square area from one show to the other to the post show you kind of get the story of liberty you know told from from the beginning on through later decades so that is an interesting aspect of it uh after it would tell the story of, you know, these presidents and their time. The curtains would open to reveal all the presidents, which uh, were fewer at the time than there would be in, in later shows. Uh, at the climax of the show, the curtains behind the stage would part to reveal a widescreen projection of the Capitol Dome as a musical finale plays. So, again, much like the uh, eventual show that we know today. Right. And they make they make a big deal during certain... Uh, certain iterations of this attraction and it's designed that it will be circular and it's a circle yes. imagine a circle <laughs> keep that in your mind yeah there's a great uh one day we'll have a show discussing just the development of the hall of presidents and because this went through a lot of stages uh it was eventually going to be called a, sh a show called one nation under god which uh would have all the presidents but then when they really only had the tech to develop one figure, uh, the Lincoln figure, uh, Robert Moses, who was the big poobah at the World's Fair, really wanted One Nation Under God there. But in the end, they could only get Lincoln there because the tech just wasn't ready yet. And so, you know, we go it this decades-long development of this figure until we actually did get the Hall of Presidents at Walt Disney World in 1971. So... Someday we'll tell that story. Yes. Uh, the post-show of this is the only aspect of the Liberty Street concept that you can actually experience today at Disneyland, which is a model of the United States Capitol building, which was created by a sculptor named George Lloyd over a period of about 25 years. He carved it out of French Caen limestone, three sixteenth of an inch to a foot. And this, this incredibly, incredibly detailed model of the Capitol that, you know, it took him years to do. 
It wound up touring the country in various fairs and exhibits, and it finally landed in L.A. in 1955 and caught Walt's eye. And uh, he wound up buying it, and George Lloyd lived off the proceeds until he died in 1962. So uh, this was going to be the post-show of the Hall of the Presidents. It was going to be displayed in a rotunda with a day-night lighting cycle, which I thought was pretty cool. And uh, it would be surrounded with scale reproductions of individual rooms in the Capitol. And it would identify, you know, the individual rooms with important historical events which happened there. So you'd see all these different rooms and there would be a plaque telling you, you know, what happened in each famous room. And that's like super spiffy knots slash Epcot com- yes. combination. <laughs> Absolutely. It's so cool. And that Capitol model is incredible. I mean, it's in the, like you said, it's in Mr. Lincoln's uh, pre-show now. And it is really something. Uh, Evidently, he uh, is a sculptor who worked on a lot of buildings. And then in the Depression, he ran out of money, uh, ran out of work. And he uh, just started working on this, which he had been researching for for such a long time because the U.S. Capitol made such an impression on him, but it is spectacular. It still is, it is well displayed, but imagining it in a rotunda with day-night cycle is pretty cool. Yeah, it would be an impressive effect. And then from there, he would spill back out onto Liberty Street and tour some more exhibits. Here, I, I mean, I, what I couldn't help but thinking when we saw the plot plan of this is it's such a bottleneck. Um, what would it be like when the Hall of the Presidents and the Hall of Declaration <laughs> dumped out their people at the same time? Oh, but, totally. Yeah. I mean, it would just be a lot of people. A lot of people in the street. Yeah. It would depend on going from one to the other. And then as you go sort of clockwise around the square, it goes, it dumps from the Hall of the Presidents into that Capitol exhibit. But yeah, it would be quite a rush of people. And you would imagine people coming into the street and then out of the street at the same time would be quite a quite a crush. So, yeah, right. a definite bottleneck there for sure. It's hard to believe that this plan for Liberty Street existed at the same time that the Edison Square plan was underway. I mean, those two lands, Edison Square kind of coming off the center street of Main Street and you know, butting up right to the back of Liberty street would have been such a cool furthering of main street USA. Oh, absolutely. I really wish they had done both of those, um, because it would have added so much more, I don't know, depth to the experience. And, you know, they, these are things that they do so well, like Disney does colonial America so well. That's one of the reasons why I'm so depressed. They never did Disney's America because it's a theme that they pull off really, really well. And the fact that you could have just this winding street full of all these different facades. And then again, with Edison Square, the same thing, but in a different time period, you know, these very detailed facades. And, and, you know, I love Disneyland for its out-of-the-way spaces, its little cul-de-sacs and areas. I mean, that's why New Orleans Square is the best, because of you know, all these little out of the way places, they fit into such a small place. And this would have really added that to main street a lot. And it would have been a, I don't know, it would have, it would have been a fun thing to have all these places to explore. Yeah. One of the cool things about New Orleans square is it goes kind of that street goes around kind of in a U shape or a J shape. And it makes you feel like it's 
kind of never ending that, you know, that there's more that you're not seeing. And it, it would have definitely done that. You know, the every street cul-de-sac would have led to something different. Uh, pretty cool idea. Too bad it didn't happen. And it didn't happen. As you said, it, they got distracted with uh, the big 1959 expansion Disneyland. And then it was off to the World's Fair. And they were still developing all those things. And then Walt Disney World started happening, and then Walt passed away. So it never really had time to gel. There was always something else kind of taking its spot. And although then uh, Liberty Square became a fundamental part of Walt Disney World's planning, and one of the things that they advertised heavily in the run-up to Walt Disney World as, as, a, as a new experience that the park would feature uh, that had not been at Disneyland before. And uh, Hall of the Presidents was really a cornerstone of their advertising in those early years. Right. And uh, it's it's cool to see the way they put it in the Disney World design where you start at Liberty Square and then work your way around into Frontierland and through kind of more or less through American history. It's, it's pretty cool how they pulled it off there as well. Uh, a whole different... Yeah, it's a nice transition from... The colonies to sort of St. Louis to Western expansion. It's it's a nice little spectrum there. So that's a look at Liberty Street, another chapter in the annals of the Disneyland that never was. But uh, good ideas, of course, never die, and we can experience uh, Liberty Square today at the Magic Kingdom. definition of the word liberty. And the American people just now are, are much in want of one. We all declare for liberty, but in using the same word, we do not all mean the same thing. 
what constitutes the bulwark of our liberty and independence. It is not our frowning battlements, our bristling sea coasts. These are not our reliance against tyranny. Our reliance is in the love of liberty, which God has planted in our bosoms. Our defense is in the preservation of the spirit which prizes liberty as the heritage of all men, in all lands, everywhere. Destroy this spirit, and you have planted the seeds of despotism around your own doors. Michael, what's on TV in Progress City tonight? Well, uh, we're going to flip on, you know, warm up the patriotic cockles of our hearts and flip on the 1988 Walt Disney World 4th of July Parade. Yes, it is a spectacular. Truly a spectacular in so many ways. Uh, You know, back in the day, there were a couple of poles of of the year you know there there was the uh christmas parade and then the fourth of july parade both came live from walt disney world uh they you know for several years they did an easter parade too but i don't ever remember seeing that Uh, i don't either although i remember being down there one time and they were filming the easter parade but i don't remember ever seeing it yes i remember that as well but uh i don't know if they just didn't show that in our area or what but there was definitely Fourth of July parade and the Christmas parade, and uh, these were a big deal because it's weird to think. I was thinking about you know, we didn't have YouTube. This was before we had like home movies or anything. This was yeah. really the only way, like twice a year, you could get your like Walt Disney World fix. Yeah, and they didn't do commercials back then, really. No, so there was nothing. I mean, right, like, except for for these specials, and they were large i mean this is an hour and a half of programming yeah spread out over two hours of tv yeah it would be two hours on christmas two hours of fourth of july you know network uh coverage and uh it was a big deal because it was always where they would unveil like their latest whatever it was they're going to promote their latest attraction or their latest parade or their latest you know new land or whatever it was this was where you would first get to see it because again there was literally nowhere else to see it. And 1988 was a big time for the Disney company. Eisner had come in a few years prior, and this was kind of like when his plans his uh, that he had green-lighted were starting to come to fruition. That's right. And this special is really peak 1980s Disney content in so many ways yes. from... Yes. The projects they're describing to the production techniques to the celebrities that they have on, it is very specific to this era. And, you know, we're here talking about patriotism, the 4th of July and all this. This was uh, a nexus of 
a couple of major events down at Walt Disney World. One of them very patriotic, uh, which was a year-long salute to the bicentennial of the signing of the Constitution of the United States. That's right. I which mean, it's seems not enough that you uh, celebrate the bicentennial of the Revolution. No, the it was not enough that in in you know seventy six they had had the big bicentennial celebration. They came back a decade later and changed for to celebrate the bicentennial of the Constitution. And I'm not sure whose idea that was, but it's really you know that to think that you know the Magic Kingdom would have this big year long event with a dedicated show and a dedicated parade for this. Uh, that's really not something you'd see you know these days. No, no, no focusing on Disney itself. It's focusing on America, which is, you know, it's, it's interesting. This to me strikes me as kind of the beginning of a new era, really. But you see a lot of uh, hints towards the old. And I would say that is kind of uh, more 70s Disney tech, you know, or, or even before, you know, there's plenty of, um, as we have discussed in this episode, uh, nods towards america yeah it's a very a lot of times during this show i kept thinking you know there's it goes a long time we see stage shows parades all sorts of stuff and there's no you know disney songs there's no you know stuff from movies it's just you know we'll talk about it but this special ends with what seems like an just unbelievably long production number in the castle forecourt stage. And it's all, you know, Americana stuff, not, you know, no characters, no nothing. So it's, it's really, it, it is like a bridge. I think, like you said, it's like a bridge between the two eras. I actually thought that when I was watching that, you know, it's a lot of, you know, sort of the older style stuff with a lot of the Eisner era, sort of flair like showbiz flair that he brought into the company because it is more polished than like the stuff you'd see in the seventies. It would have that, the sort of traditional thematic stuff and the sort of kind of cheesiness of it. But, um, and this has that, but then it also has the sort of style that Eisner brought in. Is this the beginning of Disney on Broadway? You could argue that. I mean, my goodness, there's a lot of Broadway on this. There's definitely a lot of Broadway in this and a lot of, <laughs> we see a lot of people that you would see at, you know, the, when they would have 4th of July at the Capitol, you know, out on the mall, you know, th those kind of people that they would bring out the American treasures. And, uh, so there's a, there's a lot of that right. too. So the special begins very, uh, low key with a non soundtrack video of a flyover. Yeah, of it's like a cold over. open of <laughs> yeah, jets cool. flying over the Magic Kingdom. Yeah, it's funny that you know another thing I thought I thought about this particular special because we had started you know taping these parades a couple of years prior with the Christmas parade, and when you look at those very first ones that like we remember, it was super unpolished and it was almost right. like they were you know, the parade narration or whatever, they had some notes, but it wasn't really scripted. And so they were just kind of winging it, which, you know, you could never imagine such a thing happening today. 
And this is like a little more where they started to get a little more scripted. And, uh, but there's still a lot that has that sort of, I mean, it's almost like a local parade feel, but having, you know, the, the live cutaway to the planes flying over, uh, without narration or anything definitely has that vibe. Right. Uh, then there's the grand intro and there's an amazing helicopter shot at night going towards the magic kingdom. It already gets me excited. I mean, I'm yes. at this point. you got to get that live from Walt Disney world in Orlando, Florida, you know, that, yeah. that helicopter shot. And, uh, you know, I, like I said, we, this was a kind of a nexus between a couple of big deals at Walt Disney world. And we'll talk about one of them more later, but it was between the, celebration of the constitution which i've written about before about some of the weird stuff they did for this you can find that on the blog but then also the big celebration that was coming up this same year was starting up was the 60th anniversary of mickey mouse and that was huge and that was a huge deal so uh we have this opening musical number uh the hear the band number at the uh main street train station like out in front in the flower bed but uh if you'll notice they've got like the, the big logo for the bicentennial that's kind of up on the railing but then they've also got signs for happy birthday mickey so this was like kind of at the edge between the two celebrations yeah i thought it was really cool they started the train station that that fired me up this uh this number is is a a hint of what's to come it is bloated and enthusiastic it is an interesting super enthusiastic medley of come follow the band which was for the musical barnum in 1980 and which i was so excited to figure out that hear the band that refrain is from a seals and crofts song called i'll play for you from 1975 wow okay i didn't know that so they put those two together for a an amazing medley in which there's just a bunch of dancers and uh, costumes that kind of echo the Walt Disney World marching bands uniforms, but they all have uh, three flags coming out of their uh, top hats. Some of them have pom poms. I love that. I love the flags coming out of the hats, and it's and it's like really like little flags on sticks sticking up out of their hats. It's so good. It's like yeah. something you would see. I feel like in a like a Christopher Guest movie. Yes. Yes. Of, of a patriotic tableau. The train comes in. That's exciting. And I think it has just real guests on it waving. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we're introduced to our hosts and, you know, the, in the grand tradition of the 80s show, it's the end featuring special guest stars and then a bunch of random people. But our oh hosts are Tempest Bledsoe from the Cosby show and star of the new hit Double Dare, Mark Summers. What do you think of this pairing of hosts? Uh, you know, I think they do a good job. I think it is an odd pairing, but uh, you know, that you could compare it to other uh, Walt Disney World specials. I think they come out pretty favorably. I am a Mark Summers aficionado. We love Double Dare. Yeah. We went to the set of Double Dare, and yeah. we had a Mark Summers doppelganger giving us a tour. A, a real highlight of the years. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I agree. I remember this, like, <laughs> as a kid, I was, like, a bitter critic of, like, various parade hosts. Yes. Uh, like, I, I was 
cruel and unforgiving to parade hosts. And I, I remember thinking they were really awkward and, but they're not, they're not bad, especially compared to, you know, things we've seen since in years since, uh, but they're not bad. And, you know, they're both affable. Yeah. Especially considering, you know, Mark Summers is a host by trade, but Tempest Bledsoe is just an actress that is, you know, probably a teenager at this point. And, oh, totally. Yeah. But yeah, they're in a gazebo set. I said, if only uh, their main street had a gazebo, it would be uh, perfect. But yes, they had to build a set around them. Yes, indeed. So we kick it off and we've got the all America parade is what they're, what they're showcasing tonight. And what are your thoughts about this parade? This was an iconic parade. Well, I mean, I just, the, the length of it and the, budget behind it is impressive i mean they've got a very catchy tune spirit of america because it was the spirit of america parade at first and then it became the what is it all america parade what was is that what you yeah well that's what they just call the whole thing i think it was like the the we the people all america parade during the constitution thing right. i always called it the spirit of america parade because that's what the song says that's right. the lyric in the song repeated over and over again but it is vast. I mean, it is quite the quite the parade, and there's a bunch of floats that you see used over and over again. I'm thinking particularly of the riverboat float and the castle float. Yes, that uh, always come into play. Yeah, that struck me I, again. Uh, you know, people always talk about America on parade as being this huge, enormous, long parade, but this was also a very long parade, the kind you don't see anymore. And I mean, this was not a like a special occasion thing. Like this was a parade that ran in the park, and, and not only a ton of floats, but a ton of dancers and perf like stunt performers, and you know, skateboarders and BMX people and all Always sorts the of BMX stuff. People. Always the BMX people. And you know, I remember as a kid because this parade got reused a lot. Like the year after, you know. Like I said, we'd get these parades twice a year and it got to be a thing where you knew it was going to be like this parade, but in a different wrapping. Like the next year it was like, you know, America salutes Mickey Mouse. So it right. was, you know, all the regions saluting Mickey, you know, and as a kid, it's like, oh, I can't believe it's the same thing over and over again. But like now I'm like, well, yeah, it had to be incredibly expensive. No wonder it's the same thing over and over again. Yeah. I mean, I think it, it really is noteworthy that it follows a a theme in and of itself it moves uh, geographically through america i thought that was neat and it's pretty clear to follow you know so yeah i don't know absolutely. i'm not a parade guy but uh sure yeah neither am i but you know looking back at like the scale of it you know com compared to you know things you saw after it it is it is impressive and you know there's some like iconic floats and sort of iconic moments i think about the like the scarecrows uh oh yeah yes. and jumping with you know using their leg as a post and jumping around that's a pretty uh fun bit of bit of business uh but this song is quite an earworm yes and and they kind of cleverly weave it into a, as a refrain to whatever area they're in so there's a bunch of songs they use specific to the areas for instance the midwest they sing play me some country music which is the alabama song play me some mountain music and then they go back into their uh 
their refrain. And this song was written by Frank Liberty and Theodore Ted Ricketts. And oh, Ted Ricketts with the banger. Ted Ricketts has been a busy man. He has done a lot of arranging. So I assume he did most of the arranging for this. And Frank Liberty wrote some of it, but I don't know that for a fact, just judging from their resumes. But I must tell you that Frank Liberty wrote the Mickey's Birthday Land Express song for the Walt Disney World Railroad. Which is, uh, you know, talk about an earworm, something that is in my head, whatever, 30, almost, yeah, 35 years later, uh, nearly, uh, still stuck in my head from that. Yeah, I would love to talk to these guys sometimes because uh, it would be interesting to know how the the process worked in these days. There's a lot of songs that they, you know, that were written for Walt Disney World Entertainment. You think about the 15 years song around this time that were just so catchy and so good and so well produced and they come and they go and they're never on a soundtrack even. They're just out there and then they're gone. Right. But there, yeah, it was definitely like a vibe to this era of the songs. And I feel also ties in, I think a lot of times I said a major like splash dance vibes, mm-hmm. uh, of, you know, all tying into that sort of aesthetic of the era. Yes. But yeah, all those Walt Disney World songs at the time were very catchy. I want to give a quick shout out to the All American College Band that is just briefly shown. And a specific shout out to Del Baker, a friend of mine who's a drummer in in Durham who was in the All-American College Band. Oh, wow. I'm curious if he was down here at that time. And then, of course, Major Mike leading the Major Mike Mike Band. Yeah. Major Mike. Major Mike Davis, who was always got the shout out. He must have had a good contract because he always got the shout out from like the parade people like every year. His enthusiasm was infectious. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Absolutely. It was one of those people that you would see because they'd make a big deal about him on TV. But then you'd go down there and see him and it was like, oh my gosh. Like a celebrity viewing. Exactly. I also noted on the uh, the uh, float full of world singers or whatever, the uh, the fellow, and I can't think of his name right now, but uh, who played Ken in Barbie's World. Later, later, (laughs) years later at Epcot, uh, a sort of iconic Walt Disney World performer. Yes, yes. The first float's kind of a bell tower with a constitution coming off the front of it. Pretty cool float. Minnie and Mickey's on on the front of that one. Then you got this float I think you're talking about, which has singers with the 13 flags of the original states. Right. That's the one, yeah. You got the gummy bears handing out flags. I know. I laughed at. They're so Tempest is so excited to see the uh, gummy bears. I, I don't know which gummy it is, but uh, and handing out with a little cart handing out flags. Right. And they're like everybody gets to participate. Like yes, it's true. Then they uh, moved to New England with the uh, lighthouse, and you know the people, the dancers have the men have rain slickers, and the women have these weird baby doll looking outfits <laughs> yeah that was weird it is weird. mark comments that you know everybody has everybody owns that rain slicker which i'm not sure about but that's right in the middle here they randomly i guess they're going to a commercial there's a uh a burt reynolds cameo yeah i love that we got a little burt they would do this uh with their celebrity appearances get people who were doing various things for disney at the time 
I guess this was when he was doing like win, lose, or draw, maybe oh, yes. for for Disney. I didn't even look up to see what he was doing for them at the time, but I think this was. I think he did that. Um, he's, in a, he's in like a secret garden. Yeah, yeah. He got like a sweater on or whatever. He's very casual. Yeah. Says like a little sultry, you know, happy birthday, America. I love you, baby. SS Mishap with Hook and Smee. That is echoes of a Disneyland parade, really. I mean. Yeah, that was really, that is a very good point. That, that's the kind of like little vignette. Like Hook and Smee on this little boat. That is very Disneyland vibe. And then, as Michael said, we get to the Midwest, which is a silo. They're doing the play me some country music. There's the country bears on a horse uh, led carriage and the scarecrows he was discussing. So. Yeah, those scarecrows. Uh, that's that's a good gag. That's a fun gag. Also, the first of several country bear appearances throughout the yes. night. Yes. Very prominently featured, as, as yes. they should be. And then we uh, cut to Mickey World. So what what happens here? So this is a big, big celebration that they had in 1988 for Mickey's 60th birthday. And they kick off with this song, The Whole World Wants to Wish You Happy Birthday, Mickey Mouse, which has a very splash dance vibe. But it's uh, even like an 80s sitcom theme song. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's it's great. We get a little montage of Mickey from the past doing things. And this was actually a song that was written for his 50th anniversary, which I didn't know, and had been on the special for that because they had a TV special for that when he turned 50 in uh, 78. Uh, but they brought it back and updated it and used it because I remember it hearing it a lot. For Yeah. Uh, they used it on specials for his 60th uh, birthday. It's a good, good tune. I mean, yeah, it is. It's, it's much more low energy than you would expect. It's very conversational, but I like at the end, the guy's like, we got to thank you, Mickey. <laughs> <laughs> like the low, the low guy. I love that guy. Right. Uh, so we cut, you know, they say we got Mickey's birthday land now opening and Mickey has been nice enough to share some of his video of that day because oh. Minnie held a surprise party for him. Okay. So we've got some home video footage from Minnie Mouse of Mickey's uh, special birthday festivities at Mickey's Birthday Land. There's like a title card that said, My Birthday, right? And it's yeah. like crudely He's got drawn. Mickey. It's like <laughs> Mickey's got like a video toaster and like <laughs> draws like a. <laughs> like a, a yeah my birthday by <laughs> mickey mouse with like a little party hat and star or whatever <laughs> yeah uh, right right off the bat these voices are not yes the official voices and they are not well done i mean the goofy voice but also the mickey voice are pretty absurd i mean it sounds like something that you could do Yes, I was going to say the exact same thing. I mean, it sounds like me doing Mickey Mouse or something. Uh, it's because <laughs> it's Mickey coming out of his house and all the characters are like trying to play casual and like Goofy's got the camera and uh, they're trying to like make it appear like nothing's going on. But I thought the same thing. I said, man, this was before Disney character voices had like the lock 
on how everything was presented because it is not by the book at all. No. It's like, hi, it's, it's my birthday, and oh boy. And Goofy just sounds super crusty, like, hey, wow, what yeah. you doing there, Mickey? It's like Bill Farmer had smoked a carton of cigarettes <laughs> and like a bottle of scotch or something. Oh gosh. <laughs> uh yeah, but we get to we get some good footage of Birthday Land, uh, which, you know. What yep. were your impressions of Birthday Land? Let's go back through the mists of time and and revisit our feelings about oh, that. Boy. Birthday land. I remember being excited to go to Mickey's Birthday Land because it was so uh, advertised yes. as a new land at uh, the Magic Kingdom. Yes, very and, big deal. You know, I remember I remember pulling around and seeing the tents and being like, "Oh, this is this is <laughs> not what I expected." The tents, yeah. the tents alone are uh, troublesome, but uh, yeah, the immortal tents. The budget was low, and I think it is perfectly reflected in the special how low the budget was. There's a great whole montage of the uh, stage show that we will get to, and as someone who had kind of forgotten the stage show, I just remembered that that was like one of the key attractions to the whole thing. I mean, yeah, it was the the only attraction. Really. Yikes! Yikes! Yeah, yeah. Like I remember being uh, again the hype and being so excited because it's a new land and you know oh what treasures will this hold, and you know you went they added the train station back there that had not existed before, and I'm assuming we first arrived by train we didn't walk back there we went by train, and you know they had all these little vignettes along the railway of like oh you know it was all the characters like coming to. Uh, the birthday land with like all their birthday presents for Mickey. But it was kind of like something, it was like stuff you'd see at Fort Wilderness, like for Christmas that somebody would have like by their campsite. Yes. Painted flats of like a painted flat of like, you know, Pooh and whoever with like big presents, like in a wagon or something going, going in that direction. Uh, But it was kind of like, Oh my gosh, it was like building anticipation of like, it was as a kid. It was weird to see an overlay of like the train ride, which you knew very well. But like, oh, there's all this new stuff of like, oh, it's changed a little bit. That was kind of exciting. But you know, I remember being so excited because it was Duckburg, right? And being such a huge Ducktales fan, and like read the like the Duck comics, and it was Duckburg. So that was a big deal. And you arrived, and it was like, welcome to Duckburg, and had like the Duckburg version of like the Kiwanis like welcome sign or whatever. And that was exciting. But man, once you got there, it was a disappointment big time. Yeah. I mean, they just put it together too fast and on too small of a budget. Right. It was never meant to be permanent. It was a right. very temporary thing. Uh, but even as a kid, it was a letdown because I wanted like Duckburg, man. I wanted the full thing. Uh, but it did have Mickey's house, which was the full size Mickey's house that you could walk through. Uh, and that, that changed over the years and in later versions. It got a little more elaborate, but uh, it was there. And so that was kind of interesting. And you would walk through that. And in his backyard, he it was like a little winding path and had like Donald's house, which was a little, I mean, these were like 
you know, super elaborate, like doghouse size. Yeah. They weren't even know. playground size. It was no. Yeah. Smaller. Like Donald's house was a boat and then had like Goofy's house and maybe they had Daisy's house or probably right. Minnie's house. And, uh, then you went into one of the big tents and they had this stage show where oh all the characters were preparing for Mickey's uh, birthday. And they show a little bit of that show, uh, just some of the little skits from that show uh, in the special. I do remember the uh, oversized giant phone that Minnie uses and the cool yellow retro Mickey refrigerator that they had. Yeah, that's a nice refrigerator. That's true. But the uh, gags are rough. They're trying to make a do a surprise party for Mickey's birthday and make him a cake. And oh boy, yeah, Chip and Dell are making this cake. And I now I realize, like watching this, why? Like as a kid, I felt Chip and Dell were like psychotic. And this <laughs> goes a long way to explaining why. Yes, because they are like. First, the voices are something else, but then they just have this manic laugh and just are like, they're just taking all the stuff from her. I mean, the gag is like, oh, we need flour for the cake. Well, here are some flowers. And, you know, you ice right. the cake. What do you use? Ice from the refrigerator. And then they're like, ah! Right. Baking soda. You use soda. Ugh. Some nice Coke product placement, though. Yes. Did you notice that? Yes, I did. They they got the they got the bottles from that's the fridge. Right. That's right. But yeah, it is it is it is uh, for the little ones only. I'm afraid. Right. They uh, they surprise Mickey, and then they sing "Happy Happy Birthday to You" from Splash Dance. Again, Splash Dance, the nexus of all things. Yeah, I, I always wonder: is this a song trying to wage war on the uh, famous copyright of the Happy Birthday song? Are they trying to do a new oh, Happy Birthday song? Oh, now that's an interesting idea. Could have been because this was when that was heavily under lock. This song was on Splash Dance, and it was written by the songwriting pair Michael and Patty Silvershire who wrote the themes to Tailspin and Gummy Bears. And they wrote for DuckTales and the Rescue Rangers music. Oh, wow. That so, is a resume and yes. a half right there. Legit. I'm going to get them on the horn. Outside, I noticed, which I don't remember, the first of the giant inflatables, which would become a, a, yeah. uh, a quite the thing, but there's like a kind of Uncle Sam-ish Mickey in the mouse gamaze, a giant inflatable, maybe three story Mickey. Yeah. I, uh, I wrote in my notes, bait and switch because, uh, they always had this Mickey and all the promo shots, uh, you know, the mouse gamaze, which was this like little kid, like kind of a hedge maze, kind of with like a few water fountains and stuff, but, uh, always had this Mickey towering over it, this inflatable Mickey, which was never there. But it was in all the ads. I remember I remember being burned by that. I'm like, well, where's the giant Mickey? Just had to wait for the uh, 20th anniversary and you would get all the inflatables you'd ever want. Right. But we see a lot of the festivities. And, you know, as most kids do, kids love Carol Burnett. Yes. So we've got Carol Burnett there for the unveiling. And uh, Roy E., Disney yes. and Eisner both there, just kind of silently in the background. I would like to see that presentation yeah uh but yeah kids love carol burnett they love cindy williams who was right. there at the petting zoo also another special guest another f kid favorite nancy reagan 
Yes, and she was there with the foster grandparents. Which, as you pointed out, would be a great band name. Nancy yeah. Reagan and the foster grandparents. Yes. I don't know. I love that Like Mickey says that as if like we know what that is. Right. I don't think I ever did. I don't think like Nancy Reagan and the foster grandparents. <laughs> I'm sure they loved it. I'm sure they did. Pet a goat. <laughs> it was good times. I'm sure Nancy was really into the petting zoo scene. Right. Right. Uh, so that, that wraps up our little visit to uh, Mickey's birthday, Lance, which, you know, is, has nothing to do with like, you know, the 4th of July or the patriotism, all this other stuff we're talking about. But that's the great thing about these specials is they have these like crazy little time capsules of, you know, bygone days stuff that isn't there anymore yeah uh, that was new then it is very interesting to look back and see yeah postscript that they they show a brief clip of the the actual ceremony to open where michael eisner and carol burnett blow a giant steam whistle yes <laughs> which that's right fairly arbitrary but kind of cool. <laughs> that's a good point which i don't know what that has to really to do with anything but yeah, yeah blowing a giant steam whistle and i think she gets a tug at her ear of course probably of course, of course. uh the first of a few in this yes. episode as a matter yes. of fact So coming up, we've got some big time entertainment. I'm already sad. Yeah. So we've got, um, as you you want to have your uh, big musical act, we've got uh, the Beach Boys and their special friends, the Fat Boys. Yeah. Boys. Boys all. Boys are the common denominator. (laughs) And the rest cancel out. Um. So there are my feelings about this now, and there were feelings about this at the time. <laughs> Both remarkably similar. <laughs> yes. Yes. I would say. Uh, similar appalled. in different reasons. Yes. 
appalled <laughs> and confused. Um, it yes. was before I really knew about Mike Love, which would have answered all of my questions, I feel like. Because I was very confused by this at the time. Uh, very upset by, <laughs> by this. Yeah. But I feel like knowing about Mike Love would have really you know, put a lot of those questions to rest. This is a low point, but it will only get lower for the band operating as the, under the name The Beach Boys. Yes. Unfortunately. The band legally licensed to use the name <laughs> right. The Beach Boys. Uh, like, I feel like a lot of my early life, like, I didn't hear Pet Sounds till late high, very late high school or early college. And so I grew up with a pretty low opinion of The Beach Boys. Well, yeah, we were Beatles, Beatles boys. So we were Beatles a, fans. Yeah. And, you know, I, I liked, um, I get around because it was in Flight of the Navigator. And then later I liked uh, All Summer Long because it was in American Graffiti. But I was not. And Typhoon Lagoon. And uh, yeah. And I, you know, I kind of looked down on the Beach Boys. I have a feeling this could have contributed to that in some ways. I think it's very likely. This is, well, first of all, they're playing Wipeout, which. You know, not to be too technical, but that's not a Beach Boys song. Not a Beach Boys song, right? They're not playing their instruments. And in <laughs> fact, they're like gyrating with their guitars up and down. I mean, oh, it, there are like is... five or six of the guys. You've got various Beach Boys. You've got Stamos. Yeah, Stamos is, is like, there. Yeah. This is the first time I can remember seeing Stamos. Inaugural Stamos exposure. Um, yeah, Mike Love in his pink tank top and his floral shorts. They've got like six guys with guitars, and they're doing like guitar antics and like yep. cut-ups. Yep. And like synchronize like. But as you say, I, I said, I don't know if any of them were plugged in. No. They're not playing them. Uh, the Beach Boys... at I will say, at least the Fat Boys did their own, like, Fat Boying. The Fat Boys uh, were live. That is, that is live. confirmed. Beach Boys, <laughs> not so much. Oh, it is bad. The whole concept is bad. Why? It's not even fair to the Fat Boys. It's not fair no. to the Fat Boys. <laughs> I just have written in caps. Why did this happen? You got Minnie dancing with like a roid rage guy oh, in the audience. Yeah. Minnie is practically grinding on a beefcake. It is makes me very <laughs> sad. And it goes on throughout the song. Yeah. She's in like a like a nineteen hundreds like bloomer style <laughs> like swimsuit. Like grinding on the beefcake. Um, and I was fascinated by like, these people because they had to be people they brought in. Yes, because you've a got like call. these like eighties like permed bikini babes and like these like hulked out dudes, permed dudes who were clearly not just average guests. No, and we should mention the, that they're at the brand new Grand yes. Floridian Beach Resort. This is something I would forever to this day associate with the grand floridian because how could you not um this is really bad and <laughs> so this is uh get to go back to your opinion of the beach boys a lot of what we came to love about the beach boys if i may is that is brian wilson's contribution unfortunately brian wilson was kind of under the spell of a doctor uh named gene landy at the time uh who 
kind of wouldn't let him under his, uh, out from under his thumb. And Mike Love is kind of a problematic Beach Boy anyway. Kind of took the Beach Boys away from him. So this was kind of a new Beach Boys, even though it's like Al Jardine, Bruce Johnston, they've got the guys, but uh, John Stamos, no Brian Wilson, and this is uh, this is what they're doing. You know, there's a non-zero chance that Stamos may be listening to this. So, you know, Stamos, drop us a line. Stamos, we appreciate you. We don't want this to be a judgment on you. We like that yeah. you bought the Disneyland sign and you love Disneyland so much. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. But um So we say farewell to the fat boys. Thank goodness. And, yeah. Thank goodness we are spirited away uh with a brief cameo by Mark Price from the Family Ties with the Country Bears at the Frontierland sign. Now that's something you don't see today. No, not at all. Uh yeah, second country bears presence mark price is kind of screaming at children which is weird mark price uh who i believe did the family version of win loser draw i thought he did teen win loser draw oh was it teen win loser draw i think so okay the disney channel show yes the disney channel show so apparently win loser draw a big corporate (laughs) initiative yes here in 1988 yes and so it was so back into the parade oh we got that riverboat float yeah, that big that that is a big old float. Um, I noticed for the first time that it has that WDW transportation logo on it. Pretty cool, little Easter egg. Oh, well, that's nice. Yeah. Um, we're we're moving out west. Yeah, Mister Mister Forty Nine er and his mind, the yours and mine, and a lot yours of, and mine, which I will always think about. I that always springs to mind for some reason. Yeah, uh, yeah this float with some a little light compressed air pyro effects 49er blowing up his mind you got a goofy on a a real horse now that is a job goofy on horse singing back in the saddle and there's like a you know many small horse stunt you know where he kind of jerks on the horse i mean both horse and costume performer really Going out there for that. You'd have to have a really chill horse for that. I mean, not only being in the parade, but also having somebody dress up like Goofy on your back. That's something else. Yeah. Yeah. You get a little Pegasus Bill song coming in and Mm -hmm. right before Spirit of America comes back. Out to the uh, Pacific Northwest, uh, supposedly uh, in a fire tower, is Wendell from the Country Bears. As a fire ranger. I will say that the uh, Western float had Chippendale dressed up like Indians doing smoke signals. Yeah. Which is probably something that wouldn't happen today. I was, uh, yeah, yeah. I think it's adorable. But uh yeah, we got Wendell as as the fire ranger out and in his tower. They're playing uh Bless Your Beautiful Hide. <laughs> which <laughs> I thought was pretty great. Yes. Oh. Yes, they are. Gets a lot of music licensing in this parade, Tons. man. Tons. And uh, the, the cool little water mill float with Br'er Fox, Br'er Bear, and Baloo. Of course. Which is interesting. Although yeah. they do name check Song of the South yes, in they do. their narration. Which and I it's not the only uh, Song of the South cameo. And we're still not done with the parade, but we cut away. I know. They, they, get, they, they, they drop these little things in here. Uh, we are introduced to one of the bits, one of the iconic bits of this special. Uh, you can find this on uh, the Progress City YouTube page. 
We have Willard Scott in Norway introducing us to the brand new Thrill Ride. It is a Thrill Ride. It is a Thrill Ride. The Maelstrom. At one time, he calls it the Maelstrom. The Maelstrom, yes. He changes changes all. It was wrong. It was the Maelstrom. I knew it was something. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, So we see a scene of the dedication with Crown Prince Harald of Norway. Uh, and all the Norwegian people in the crowd looking like they're about to pass out in the sun. And uh, I thought it was kind of weird they dedicated the pavilion with When You Wish Upon a Star. Yes. And then, uh, you know, they had it's their ballet. Ca- right. Yeah, their cadre of fancy dancing, some of some headbands on the dancers, which is not the only time we'll see that. Uh, it did seem a little slightly incongruent with the gravitas of the crown prince and his speech. And then there, of course, there's the like five billion balloons launched kind of unceremoniously yes. behind the Just Maelstrom like a building. huge dump of balloons like out the top of like the fortress there. I just don't know how many balloons they put out, but it was ridiculous. It is absurd. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and what a, another thing they don't do. And yeah. Right. And doves, the doves coming yeah. out. Yeah. yeah. So uh, they give us a little peek of the dedication, but they'll be back with more later on yes and we go to commercial with uh, more carol burnett sitting with the white rabbit and i guess it's perla maybe yes from from cinderella. cinderella right and uh sitting around and she wishes america happy birthday they're in the black lodge just hanging out <laughs> yes yeah they are <laughs> I don't know, the isolation chamber where they filmed all these <laughs> i don't know uh so we come back with a big promo for something very new and exciting. I can't wait to talk about this. Yeah, talk us talk us through this. Okay, so this is 1988, July 4th. Um, they're going to take us live to the brand new Disney MGM Studios opening next year. They do an overhead shot of the Streets of America, which was New York Street initially. Okay, so they do a flyover. And looks like the yeah. sound stages are done. It looks yeah. like there's nothing around the streets of America that's done. There's all these like cars pulled up. I mean, it's very clearly a construction site. Like yeah. it is not finished. I remember being so confused about this when I was a kid. And now I understand why it's very confusing and it seems extremely out of context. And it seems to have so little to do with the theme park that's coming Right. With the theme park or with the 4th of July or with anything, really. But it does uh, happen at this uh, kind of center street, if you will, of this, uh, which they will eventually, you know, put backdrops of all these other cities. Um, There's a building that kind of looks like the Flatiron Building that they focus on. And it is also featured in the Magical World of Disney opening. To the point where I was like, what is the significance of this building? Which, it must be that it was the first thing that they finished that, like, was thematic. That had to be (laughs) it. It was, like, literally the first thing that they had up. Because, I mean, you think about this, this is long before the park opened. And it's so weird to me now that it's like, oh, we come to you live from the Disney MGM Studios, which just really did not exist. And it's like a dirt lot. 
that park had a very short runway of planning. So I can't even imagine what was even said at that point. I mean, like, I guess they were building at that point, but you know, it couldn't have been done much further planned out before that. Exactly. Well, my question to you is, you know, we have this musical act. They do, you know, New York, New York on the, <sighs> this New York street. Mickey's at the grand piano, but our, you know, talk about the black lodge. Are they on the actual streets of America, New York street, or are they on a soundstage? That is a great question. I wondered the same thing. So that makes me think it might've been a little bit of both. There's some where they're definitely out there cause they've got the big floodlights, but then there's somewhere they show them on a kind of like shiny surface. So you would think that was an yes, sound. That's stage. gotta be a sound stage. Yeah. Um, you know, it's the why magic did they do Hollywood. this? There's no Bette Midler to like guide us to give to places. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. There's Mickey at a grand piano, clearly miming, you know, not that I expect Mickey to play the piano, but it's just very fake. There's like yeah. these the flat, like string light, tiny yeah it is like rope lights from like christmas display it says like new york with a big apple on it and then (laughs) right above that is uh a disney mgm studios sign which is cool but it is like they're in like the the like the monolith from 2001 they're just in the void the women are wearing tina turner outfits with tina turner wigs and the men are wearing white <laughs> yes. tuxedos. It's very bizarre. And this, yeah. to me, is like Eisner, Eisner, Eisner. Oh, this pure Eisner. And, you know, I expected the lady singing New York to New York to be like a person. But it, I don't think she was. She has kind of like a Linda Ronstadt like <laughs> appearance. But not Linda Rudstadt. And I love that. I thought there were mannequins at first, but they are in like each level of the buildings. Yes. There are like ghostly people in white tuxedos. Yes. Like just kind of like rocking back and forth. <laughs> so that was another thing that was really bewildering to me. Cause I was like, is that a reflection of the people dancing? Nope. It's the real people. Um, that singer reminded me of Madeline Kahn in clue. Yes. Oh yeah. That's a good call. That's a good call. <laughs> yeah, no mention of her, so she must have been nobody, but it must is really been. strange. And not enough like discussion about what the theme park's gonna be. Nothing. I mean they fly over no. the sound stages, but that's about it. But like that's literally all they could show because there was nothing else. And like those crude New York sets, and they're like from the New York street. As if you know, like anybody knew what that was. So yeah, very weird. Very weird. Someday we'll have to talk about the MGM opening because that's another. Oh, yes. I mean, where did they get all these dancers? I mean, the Norway opening, this place, the (laughs) grand finale of this special, which we will get to. Just tons and tons of dancers. Orlando is rich with dancing talent. Yeah, apparently so. So the next part of the special is my favorite part. Yeah, me too. (laughs) Me too. And really, if you're not going to watch this special, please go watch this part. It starts like around 38 minutes. Please watch it because what we're about to talk about doesn't really make any sense in the context until you see it. No. Uh, So I feel like all the specials of these times had like a quiet moment 
a gravitas where they would yeah, pause right. like the the yeah the gravitas moment they did this in the christmas specials where they would pause and have like reagan and margaret thatcher yes, come on yes and do a like oh in this holiday season we think about things and you know have a little solemn message of whatever and so we're introduced to miss america keilani ray rafko who i remember right. being miss america because of that name being amazing mm-hmm. Um, and she's in Liberty Square by the Liberty Bell and, uh, you know, gives a little like humble message about, you know, the meaning of America and the people and the whatever. Expertly turning between two cameras, switching back and forth. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. A master of the switch. And so we get a little footage of, uh, Mr. Lincoln from Hall of Presidents, a little appropriate audio clip of El Royal Deno. And, uh, and then it, you know, it's kind of like a standard issue, like, oh, good feelings, montage of America and with like little audio clips from like Hall of Presidents and American Adventure. But then it goes bonkers. Yeah. I mean, they go, they take a hard tack towards, uh, civil rights protest footage with anti-slavery voiceover. And then they throw in Nixon resigning, and it's just off to the races. It's just yeah. everything <laughs> against the wall. In my notes, I just had radical written. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it kicks off with like the guys at the Olympics doing like the Black Power salute yes. that that yes. moment. Then it has Nixon resigning, and then it goes into the, it like kicks in with like I guess it starts and stripes forever if I remember right. And it's got it's got it all. It's got it's, the New Deal. It's, it's got, got like a voiceover from it's it's a wonderful life with immigration. That's the first one. Yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. And it's got like it has FDR and JFK and LBJ and Robert Kennedy, like a quote from Robert Kennedy, and it's got a quote from the Grapes of Wrath. They got <laughs> it's shots of amazing. homeless people. They have Jesse Jackson. They have yeah. Iranian hostages. If Henry yes. Kissinger, this is when yeah. it gets like really to the stratosphere. They're like throwing Henry Kissinger, Woodrow Wilson, Ronald Reagan, Rambo in order. <laughs> yeah. That quote from that, that, that cut from Reagan to Rambo was something Reagan else. Reagan to Rambo. Uh, I think my favorite part was when they were doing No Place Like Home from Wizard of Oz as Apollo Soyuz was docking. Yes. <laughs> it's so good. I would love to know who put this together. Oh, it's it goes on. It keeps escalating. But yeah, the the politics are radical. Yeah, they really are. I was so surprised. But like it is like New Deal flag waving um black power. Uh, yeah. Yeah. It's crazy. You got a little Will Rogers in there. You got a little, I I don't know. But yeah, by the time it hit, like, it's a wonderful life. Like, George Bailey giving the speech about, you know, America and, you know, the little people and then cutting the grapes of wrath. I was like, man, this is out there for uh, 1988, heart of the Reagan era. I know. It's just hard to believe that the center would hold this at any point in time, but... There we are. 
So we are back to the parade with the grand finale. Yeah, and just back into the parade. Yep. Um, this was the part that used to really stick out to me, of course, as a child of the 80s. The California float with the BMX bikers, roller skaters, and skateboarders. Yeah. Pretty cool stuff. Cool dudes. They are playing the Beach Boys, but the Beach yes. Boys are playing They're actually playing the Beach Boys. Yeah. And we end it with the castle float, which... The I, immortal, I, yeah. immortal castle float. And then we head back over to Epcot. Yeah, we're back in Norway, and this is really... I mean, none of the Willard Scott bits are a good look for Willard. This really, this show at the time left me with a huge disdain for Willard Scott. And so now we've got Willard creeping on the Norwegian cast member, who is very uncomfortable. I mean, he is literally creeping on her. At one point, says, everywhere you go, there's fireworks. Her confused look after he says that. Yeah, she's so confused and, like, wants to flee. Thank goodness we're saved by a quality, quality montage of the Norway Pavilion, which I feel like this song is, like, stuck in my head when I go to the Norway Pavilion. I I mean, this is ingrained in my head. Yeah, it's so good. So many details, many of which are now lost to time. Good footage of the Akershus Buffet of, yes. in days of old. A lot of close-ups. A lot of close-ups yes. of things. Close-ups of fish. Yes. And everything, like woodwork. and uh, It's like it's, something we would have done it is with like our something video we camera. Yes. Just a very high-speed montage. Of course, they got the thrill ride at, at Norway. Pavilion. Thrill ride. A brand new thrill ride. So the, another teaser for Norway, and w- later later in the show, we'll see what the thrill ride's like. But until then, let's head to the rivers of America for Lee <sighs> Greenwood on the Liberty Bell. As I have in all caps, why? Um, this was, I was surprised to see Lee Greenwood pop up here because I thought, in my recollection, we were not regularly... Uh, have proud to be an American forced upon us till the Gulf War. This is before that. This is like a cheap shot getting it in before, (laughs) before it was standard issue. Yeah. He's got a pretty nice uh, sequined gold tuxedo jacket. Like he has very nice. And he's wearing blue jeans with it, with a belt buckle. You got Donald in a coonskin cap on the front row. Like rocking back and forth, like emotionally. <laughs> I wrote, yeah, Donald in profile, nodding along in coonskin cap. It's like his uh, <laughs> silent approval. There are like uh, impressions. <laughs> of course, there's the uh, the dancing going on in the background. They've got to get those dancers in there. Disney on Broadway. Yeah. Um, like there- just like lining the river in the background. On the Tom Sawyer rafts. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. We go from there. We've got uh, one parade wasn't enough. Uh, we're also going to have Main Street Electrical Parade, which, you know, we're not going to discuss that because, I mean, we all know Main Street Electrical Parade and may save that for another day. Uh, but, you know, as cool as it was, none of us could be as excited as Mark Summers. <laughs> and that was not fake enthusiasm, let me tell you. No, no. Mark Summers was psyched about the main street electrical parade i mean i can't imagine what he thought when spectre magic came because he uh yeah he said he got he got chills he got chills he He came on another day to watch it with his kids and he said if there's any you know if you can get down here if you can just get down here 
you got to see this thing. Yeah, whatever you got, whatever you got to do to get down here, get down here <laughs> to see the Main Street Electrical Brain. Uh, and you know, he he said it was the one thing his kids wanted to do. So the whole Summers family really into the Main Street Electrical Parade. I appreciate that that enthusiasm. Yeah, me too. Me too. We go back to the Grand Floridian. And a truly iconic moment. Yes. Uh, they're going to perform their new song, Kokomo. An interesting thing about this song was it was written by John Phillips of Mamas and Papas fame and was kind of worked on by Scott McKenzie of the If You're Going to San Francisco, Be Sure to Wear Flowers in Your Hair song. I and looked that up last night because I did not know who'd written this and I'd wondered if they had written it. And so I looked it up and I was blown away by that fact. Yeah, this song like gets a bad rap now and people make fun of it. But let's be honest, it's a pretty good song. It's good. John Phillips, uh, all-world creep, uh, terrible oh. person, but what a talent. Great songwriter. Yeah. yeah. Great songwriter. Um, and it, just something he gave away. You right. Know? Right. Oh, it would have been nice to have Brian in on that, though. Oh, I know. I mean, it just seems like a natural, natural fit, but... Um, Brian wasn't healthy, and, you know, Mike Love was in power grab zone. So, anyway, this also served as the video for this song, which was on the soundtrack of the movie Cocktail. And so the music video had cocktail scenes interspersed with the filming of this same event. Carl Wilson is the man, even though, you know, he's kind of fading at this point. He's He would not make it much longer uh, until he passed away but uh egregious mike love faking a sax solo that that bums me out to raucous crowd noise raucous reception i advise anyone who's interested in this beach boys thing to go look up the youtube mike love saxophone on record for a you know to see what mike love does on record so oh man it's great. I can't wait. To I see couldn't that. stop yeah. laughing, so you'll have to watch. <laughs> so yeah, that's uh, you know the Grand Floridian the Beach Boys. in yeah. a big music video, the Beach Boys, which was exciting yeah. at the time. Yeah, uh, but not as exciting as Epcot's unbelievable Malmstrom thrill ride. Ah, the Malmstrom. Uh, so thrilling! You have to wear rain slickers. It's, uh, the rain yes. slicker budget on this. Uh, this special was through the roof. Well, um, as Mark Summers said, everybody has one. So I guess they did. Uh, there's a lot to say about this Malmstrom uh, experience. First, that they're loading from the unload, which right. as a kid bothered me greatly. And unloading. Deceive me, yes. Um, I very vividly remember watching this. Yes. Very vividly. Um, we had been exposed to some of the old Wonderful World of Disney or uh, Wonderful World of Color episodes like Pirates of the Caribbean to Tomorrowland, one of the oh, all-time yes. greats, Yes, uh, where Walt would preview a new attraction. And for 
uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, they did a full filmed ride through of the Pirates of the Caribbean, multi-angle filmed ride through. Right. Uh, full ride all the way through. Yep. Uh, I expected that. Yeah. When, well, especially when with we, how many teasers have we had to this point? We we had been extensively teased that we're going to go on the mal- the Malmstrom. Um, I was expecting full uh, Walt era coverage, and it is edited in a very 1980s sort of way. Oh, now, yeah. what I didn't realize at the time is it's it's a very like short little montage of things. What I didn't realize was it is pretty much the entire ride. They show everything. Yes, they do. At the time, I was like, "This is such a ripoff." They didn't show us anything. Now I realize they actually did show us everything, but that's just all there was, unfortunately. And nothing says Norway like The Cure, who uh, provide us with the music for the month. Are you kidding me? <laughs> yes, it's a song just like heaven, which cracked me up. I could not stop laughing. Between that... I did not know that. Oh, yes. You know, the Norwegian... Uh, Norwegian favorites, the cure. You are not the first to pass this way. What I did not remember was the person he interviewed right before that montage who said they especially enjoyed the storm on the North Sea. That person is really yeah. awkward. So. Yes. Uh, but his response, which he's not listening to her at oh, all. Yeah, that, he's that's like, that's uh, what did you like? He's like, I enjoyed the storm on the North Sea. And he says, oh, you like things like that. <laughs> well, that's great. <laughs> I gotta remember that, that to respond mean? to people. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It's like I'm not even listening to you. Uh, yeah, they make a big deal. Willard's too chicken to ride because he, he's there and he's he's a bok bok chicken, and as he says, and he cuts the ribbon and sends them off in their rain slickers. But he's not going because it is way too intense a thrill ride. Yeah, yeah. So also, you know, this is the kind of uh, proto Splash Mountain. Cali River Rapids thing of getting really wet equals being thrilled. Like they make yeah. such a big deal. Like there's a rain slickers and there's like the North Sea. It's like raining twice as much as it does in there. And they're like, looks like they're just throwing water on people and they're like laughing as they get like <laughs> soaked. It's like people love getting wet. People love it. Yeah. Uh, yeah so that is uh, the Malstrom, the exciting new thrill ride. I remember being so excited for it, and we actually went down there because it had technical problems yes. and did not open on time. Or maybe it opened and then closed again. I'm I'm not sure really what the story was on that. Uh, but we were supposed to be down there on vacation when it, after it had opened, but it was still closed for work. And that was the same trip that uh, I did the Wonders of Walt Disney World program, ah, which yes. RIP, which I wish they still did for kids. And as part of that, we went backstage at Epcot and went around like the ring road and they had all the, uh, vehicles, the boats sitting out on like the grass behind the pavilion. And I was like, Oh my gosh, it's like getting the inside scoop here. And like asked like the cast member who was doing the thing, like what the scoop was with the ride and everything. But yeah, that was super exciting. Even though I was totally ripped off that we couldn't ride the ride. Right. Yeah. It was a big deal. We've seen a lot of things, but, you know, we got to remember this is the 4th of July. So you got to end with a bang. A patriotic bang. And boy, does it. Yeah. 
this is part of the show where I would start tuning out as a kid. Yeah, I remember like I don't really remember this that much, and now I know why because we probably cut it off. Yeah, we would we would wait till the end of the maelstrom, and then we would cut it off. But now we've got Rita Moreno and Tommy Toon and a cast of thousands in the Castle Forecourt stage uh, doing a patriotic, truly spectacular review. Spec- yes. <laughs> like, and this goes on for, I didn't even look, but it's like half an hour. Or it's something. over 20 minutes. Yeah. There's seven yeah. minutes that go on before Tommy Toon or Rita Moreno even come out. Seven minutes. Yeah. It kicks off with a montage of George M. Cohan songs, uh, which, <laughs> yeah, but I mean, not even just like Yankee Doodle Dandy or Over There, but like Deep Cuts, like yep. Harrigan. Yes. And, you know, this was 30 plus years ago, which is a long time ago. But even then, I would say George M. Cohan, not at the forefront especially his deep catalog of the American imagination. We were probably only kids in the eighties. who knew what Harrigan was. <laughs> I would think so. I don't know. Uh, it was, it wasn't a did. So we have a very long montage of George M. Cohan songs. And then, uh, Tommy Toon arrives. Tommy Toon weirds me out. I'm trying to think if this was like my inaugural Tommy Toon exposure, which of course I always thought it was hilarious because his name is Tommy Toon. So as yeah, a kid, yeah. that's funny. Um, I did not see the Welcome to Our World special, which is a 1975 special that where they debut Space Mountain, and he's in that. I did not see that till I was grown, so I did not know he had had a long history of, Hair. and he's just like kind of like a hippie in that. Yeah, yeah. But like he's like feral. establishment '80s establishment here silver silver fox salt and pepper yeah a little salt and pepper creeping in so he's got this act with like shirley temple yeah she's just like tiny and he's gigantic and she's like a baby i don't get it what's the thing with babies i don't know babies aren't that's that's not inter- that's not entertainment adults as babies no 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 and she longer. does like good ship lollipop which is just bad bad um yeah it goes in with like the whole 80s waif like any shtick I, I feel like it's all of a whole yes and i don't know much about tap dancing but it seems fairly basic the whole i mean it goes on for so long they don't even do the thing where they whip their arms and legs around you know <laughs> and he's like a legendary like choreographer dancer and it is pretty 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 basic stuff Right. Like they're doing all this like sort of like uh 1930s standards like putting on the Ritz and stepping out with my baby. Like all this like Fred Astaire kind of stuff. And like we're in the money. It's it's weird yeah. cuz it doesn't have anything to do with 4th of July, but it's just kind of a review of you know, American songbook kind of stuff. And this is where I'm talking about it feels like Broadway. Like we've got to push Broadway entertainment like it, yeah, yeah we're real in the entertainers. money for and when they do we're in the money i don't know 70 other dancers come out i mean it's an absurd yeah. amount of dancers that come out in like red outfits with gold bows all over them i mean and they're throwing money around it's weird <laughs> yeah like you said the entire uh 
Florida dancer market must have been totally tapped out for this special. <laughs> Go to New York. So we've got that. And then we've got Rita Moreno comes out doing Yankee Doodle and kind yeah. of hitting on the guys. She's kind of vamping. The traditional Yankee Doodle and then the contemporary version of Yankee Doodle, which just made me a little queasy. <laughs> yes. Yeah, a little bit. And oh my gosh, it just goes on and on and on and on. To the point that when they hit the last song, it uh it made me very happy. Because then they yes. just cut to doing Golden Dream with a very loyal rendition with interpretive dancing. Yes. Uh, much like the interpretive dancing to When You Wish Upon a Star at the Norwegian opening, we've got interpretive dancing to uh, Golden Dreams. Uh, to a guy and a lady who do a very nice rendition of it. I mean, that guy, I was like, it's not Bob Nolene, but man, it sounds just like the guy. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, um, yeah, great. And he, they're, they're singing it, I think. I'm they're singing sure. it for yeah. real. And uh, got the interpretive dance. And then ends with, a, yet again, an insane amount of balloons. Yes, and I might add that there women come out with like revolutionary war garb with swimsuit bottoms, which is just a little bizarre. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, I like uh, while he's singing uh, golden dreams, like beside him, he's got like the wounded drummer. Yes. From yes. like the spirit of 76 yes. or whatever. Yeah. <laughs> just kind of keeping guard over him while he's oh. singing golden dreams. I know. That, but it's yeah. like, it's like everything they could think of. Everything. A giant, they could think like of. tapestry of nations, statue of Liberty that, rises up with the zillion balloons yes in front of like cinderella's castle levitates up in front of cinderella castle yeah while they release a billion balloons yeah uh yeah but that's not all nope no folks first we get a shout out from eisner yes it's exciting to see him pop up he's there on site with roger that was nice yes of course uh, and introduces the uh, the finale, which we're going to get some fireworks. We're going to get some Sandy Patty. Mm-hmm. Which, as a kid, again, a funny name. So yes. I thought that was fun. Sandy Patty. And uh, she was somebody that you would see at, like, Washington, D.C., 4th of July. When they mentioned that she made such an impression at the Statue of Liberty rededication in 86. So you think they're trying to recreate that moment here. Oh, yeah. Liberty Weekend. Liberty Weekend. Yep. Four Copperfield made it vanish. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. And let me tell you, Sandy Patty is a lot. Yeah. I, I remember not liking this when I was a kid. And I had a hard time watching the end of it. I mean, she is very talented. It's just a lot. Also, you know, they keep talking about this fireworks display. They don't really show much of the fireworks. Uh, you know, because no. I've I've been there on the Fourth of July. It's really cool. And you know, New Year's Eve they'll they'll uh, put fireworks all around the park. Um, mm-hmm. Very neat. Yeah, and cool to see. More. Anyway, Sandy Patty. More of that. Less Sandy Patty. Uh, but yeah, she's belting it out. But it's yeah. kind of intense. It's very intense. Very intense. Uh, it makes me wonder when they started doing all that for the 4th of July, like fireworks-wise, but I have a feeling they were pretty big even back then. Well, they talk, kept talking about what a giant display of fireworks it was going to be. I feel like it was pretty big back then, but who knows? 
So Sandy Patty sings us out. Yeah. I mean, it was spectacular. It was spectacular. As you were saying before we started doing this, there was a lot packed into this, to this special. Quite a bit. It really gets out of hand on that Broadway review. I mean, that's like a third of it. Yeah. Because I kept watching the time and I was like, well, what else is left? Because there was still a huge chunk of time left. And then when they went to that show and it just kept going and going, like, man, they really had the entertainment budget back then. Because they were pulling out all the stops. The budget for this had to have been, I don't know, I mean, approaching Mickey's birthday land numbers, right? It's just huge. Yeah, yeah right. <laughs> it, it measured as quantities of Mickey's birthday land. It is of the scale. Yeah, it's got to be. Got to be just for, you know, a, a TV special. Just to get the MGM Studios ready for that. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> they probably had to work overtime to get that get that uh, uh, rope light thing up with the big apple on it. Oh, uh, yeah, but that, that was it. And, man, we taped it and we watched it. So yep. it just goes to show you how effective, like, this stuff is for marketing and for it's a shame they don't do more of this stuff now uh of course there are so many more venues now to see this kind of thing but like we would watch this over and over again yeah yeah this this and the uh the the christmas parades like you said i mean we would just watch them every year and and then we'd rewatch during the year yeah because it was it was our fix we just put it in and you have a little bit of uh a little bit of that Walt Disney World flavor in your day. That wraps up our first show back in a while, our 4th of July spectacular year 2020. We're looking forward to already have a bunch of ideas for 2021, so look how far we're planning ahead. I know, it's very exciting. Yes, so please reach out to us on social media. You know Michael's handle, Progress City USA. You can also email us at podcast at progresscityusa.com. We would really love to hear from you if you have any themed ideas for our new shows we'd love to hear 
Absolutely. We would love to hear them because that makes it easier for us if we That's know right. what you want. But Michael, we do have a, a next show. Do you want to tell our listeners where we're headed in the month of August? Well, let me tell you a little fun fact about me is I hate the heat, which is why I live in central Florida. But, uh, yeah, so as I suffer through this summer heat, uh, which I hate, I thought I'd take a fun little trip to cooler climes, and we're going to talk about snow. Uh, the snow show coming oh. in August. What, what do you think we uh, What do you think we might be talking about on that snow show? Who knows? I mean... Could be frozen. Might we have a little music? Some people. I'm that sure we will. Could be frozen. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot of snow stuff. Snow. It's coming. <laughs> snow. August 2020. <laughs> but we're we're very excited. As I have said multiple times, uh, we are glad to be back doing this and yes. look forward to sharing stories with you and having fun. I mean, this is a lot of fun for me. I yeah, I would like to say a special thank you to the people over the last few many, many years who have encouraged us to come out of hiding and to do this. Yes, Again. your words were not unheard. We always heard you. Inertia was significant. It really, uh, yeah, It. I always appreciated people asking for it to come back. And the fact that people listened to those three episodes, low so many years the original trilogy thanks yeah the ot as we call it yes. uh thanks for the encouragement and please uh share this with the peeps give us them sweet reviews and do and send in your uh requests because that would be just dandy so thanks for listening and we'll see you in chilly august It's time to go. Remember, everything you've seen here in our all-electric city is really possible today. So if you know any cities looking for a new springtime of progress, tell them about Progress City. Thanks, Thanks for, for joining, joining us. us. Listening to the Progress City Radio Hour, created by the folks at ProgressCityUSA.com. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at Progress City USA. If you want to contact us, please write podcast at ProgressCityUSA.com. The Progress City Radio Hour is recorded at Arbor Ridge Studios in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, on the web at ArborRidgeStudios.com. The title theme was composed by Jeff Crawford, whose music can be found at jeffcrawfordmusic.com. 
Please join us again soon for another Progress City Radio Hour. They call it Progress.